previously on Prologued. So the drug war, as I say, became this way for the police to preserve older models of policing that had been rejected in other settings. Following World War II, the United States began to boldly pursue a global community modeled upon American political, economic, and cultural systems, including the ideas and infrastructure it had developed to control drugs and those who use them. One of the most tangible things is that the United States begins to send actual police agents overseas um, from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. In the post-war period, though, the United States wasn't the only nation that aspired to international leadership. The rise of the Soviet Union, in many ways the ideological and economic foil to the United States, terrified American lawmakers, the latest menace seeking to snuff out America's light. The godless communists, American logic went, would stop at nothing to implement their revolution around the world, including pushing drugs onto those too innocent to know better. Today, we delve into how and why the Cold War, drugs, and communism became inextricably linked in the minds of American policymakers, and how that mindset accelerated the globalization of the U.S. war on drugs. I'm Brianna Mendoza, and this is Prologued. There, there are all these interesting sort of benchmark or sort of milestones, these like potential turning points in the history of the drug war. And 1962 is one of these overlooked ones. The Kennedy administration wasn't particularly happy with the way that the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and others had been approaching drug control at home. But as we learned in the previous episode, Harry Anslinger and FBN agents were incredibly skilled at leveraging the press to make a base hit look like a grand slam, much to the dismay of their foreign hosts. Ultimately, at the White House Conference on Narcotic and Drug Abuse in September 1962, Kennedy yielded. So, and Kennedy actually makes this big announcement in the, at the summit that the FBN's global jurisdiction is going to be expanded uh, throughout the world, uh, from Europe to East Asia and into uh, Central and South America, even as they're saying, like, we don't really like the Bureau's approach uh, on the domestic front. So it kind of looks like this moment where there's, a, there's already a disconnect between the U.S. drug war and the sort of U.S.-led global drug war. But it also turns out to be this missed turning point um, the Kennedy administration appoints this commission, which is really intent on taking a moderate kind of middle of the road approach to drugs. Um, but it all gets lost in the Kennedy assassination and like all the other chaos of the 1960s. As the FBN strived to expand the American footprint around the world in regards to drug control, areas that we might refer to as laboratories of the war on drugs, to borrow the phrase from Dr. Teague. They expanded into regions that were of interest to U.S. policymakers for another important reason, containing communism. So during the Cold War, um, you know, U.S. counterinsurgency efforts were typically directed against leftist or, you know, Marxist or sort of socialist insurgencies. 
Um, whereas, you know, counter narcotics policies were directed against um, the production and trafficking of drugs. But during the Cold War, there's a tension between those two goals. And the rhetoric of U.S. officials suggests that they, um, you know, were trying to use uh, the U.S. public concern about drugs in order to, um, you know, uh, curry like or cultivate U.S. domestic support for anti-communist policies. So even, you know, even in the earliest years of the Cold War, um, the, the rhetoric was very much that it was, you know, communists in Europe and Asia who were directing the drug traffic into the United States. U.S. policymakers used the Cold War and drug control to reinforce each other, a sort of circular logic that didn't always produce the most coherent foreign policy. Like looking at the Chinese Civil War, for instance, um, it was actually the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek who were most involved in trafficking of opium. And um, the United States was, of course, supporting the nationalists against the Chinese communists. And again, you know, with all these accusations that it was the communists who were directing the, the you know, supply of, of narcotics to fund their, you know, their own uh, insurgencies or governments, in fact, the reverse was true. Um, when Mao came to power, he enacted, uh, you know, legal restrictions against the use and trafficking of opium and, you know, which carried really harsh penalties. So on the drug issue, it would seem that actually Chinese communist policy and U.S. policies were aligned. But of course, because of the Cold War, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party was viewed as the enemy. And so the United States, you know, couldn't, because of that, refused to, you know, collaborate or coordinate with the Chinese Communist government on narcotics control policies internationally. Before we continue, let's pause here for a moment to review how we tell the story of the Cold War. In general, the history of the Cold War is often presented as an international showdown between two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. Hostilities never broke out directly between the two, but plenty of proxy wars were waged between 1947 and 1991, like those in Korea and Vietnam. In this narrative, secondary and tertiary actors are often presented as pawns of a sort in the larger chess match between the Americans and the Soviets. Many history experts, however, challenge the idea that smaller nations were simply following orders. Rather, much like how we've learned that different nations waged drug wars for their own reasons, they also participated in the Cold War on their own terms the best that they could. Thus, even as the international context shaped how people understood what was happening in their local communities within their home countries, histories exist that predated and outlived the Cold War. The war in Vietnam, for example, ignited initially in 1946 as a struggle for liberation from French colonial control, and then later morphed into the Cold War proxy battlefield we now remember it for in the 1950s. Keep this in mind as we turn our attention to Afghanistan, where the challenges of nation-building, Cold War tension, and drug control collided. And even Afghanistan as a place doesn't really start to sort of emerge until the 17th century, 18th century. So 
um, Afghanistan was largely sort of, you know, this is this is getting into the ideas of really sort of these city-states, you know, Greco-Bactrian Empire. I mean, that's way, way back, but, you know, Bamiyan, which is one of the great trading cities of the Silk Road. And obviously, opium was an important product in in Asia uh, and in Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. This is James Bradford, an assistant professor of history at Berklee College of Music. I'm a specialist on uh, the Afghan drug trade and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, in South Asia, I have a sort of keen interest in sort of the global impact of the war on drugs and on drug policy in parts of Asia. For much of its history, opium has been an essential trade product for Afghanistan. It's an anti-diabetic. So most people have recognized that for areas in which we're struggling or coping with diseases or diarrheal diseases, cholera, dysentery, Opium is, of course, a lifesaver. Like that, you just can't deny that. It's a, it's, it's a really sort of fundamental drug that will save people's lives. And, and going back historically, these are great killers of humankind. You know, diarrhea and cholera. So, um, the, the problem is, is like, when do you start to see it commodified? And that's really when you see sort of the more contemporary or more sort of modern features of it. Trade in Afghan opium was concentrated mostly within its borders, though until the turn of the 20th century. It's not until we get into the 20th century that we start to see, and this is, again, sort of thinking about sort of the global expanse of this, is this is when opium, too, starts to really emerge as a, a, a much bigger global commodity that's making its way into almost all markets. I mean, it becomes sort of a, you know, one of those commodities that, that starts to define modern life. Having access to opium is, is indicative of, of one's, you know, embrace of modernization in, in all of its sort of loaded and, and problematic uh, ideas. This is sort of the duality of drugs, right? Is that I always think about this as opium, that someone that studies opium um, is, there's obviously medicinal benefits to it. I mean, opium, it, you know, save your life if you get cholera or dysentery or, or diarrhea. I mean, it constipates you. It's a painkiller. But it's also euphoric. And so the duality of a drug like that is that it's, it, it's dangerous, right? It, you can become addicted to this drug. Despite its dangers, Afghan policymakers and everyday citizens recognized that opium was a lucrative product. If trade were expanded in the drug, it could transform their country and its position in the international community entirely. So traders started to trade this in, in larger quantities. You started to have series of government companies which were producing it in India and in British colonial control of India. Afghan traders were increasingly bringing Afghan opium into South into the subcontinent. And it was posing a significant threat to to the British colonial authorities, largely sort of rivaling their 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 legal, I, I put that in air quotes, legal um, you know, legal trade for opium. And Afghan Afghan traders basically undermined it by offering, you know, that you know, not paying, largely smuggling it in, not paying excise taxes. And what we start to see is in the tens, nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, Afghan opium starts to really sort of pick up. Actually, one of the things that I'm working on now is that um, one of the things that contributes to uh, drugs being eventually abandoned as legal commodities, opium particularly, 
is the threat of outside sources of opium, particularly Afghan opium. So, and this is in British India. Um, so that sort of sets the stage by the 1930s where you start to have these government companies that are cultivating opium, they're shipping it, they're trading it with, with a variety of countries, Germany, France, Thailand. Um, and a, a large array of Western pharmaceutical companies are buying it to produce to, for pharmaceutical drugs, um, pharmaceutical narcotics. And that's really when Afghanistan starts to, to uh, arrive and, and show up on the map uh, as sort of global cultivator of, of, of opium is that for, for Afghans, there's a recognition that opium, that there's something more about opium than just a medicine of which was, and that's like the idea that this is a product that has global appeal and was lucrative and Afghans were pretty good at growing it. That really sparks this, this change among the, to recognize that this is a product that has significant potential to transform Afghanistan. That, of course, then is where Afghan opium comes into full sort of in full force with the emerging sort of international drug control regime. And that's where sort of the, the the history of Afghan opium gets really, really messy. What is interesting to note here, as Dr. Bradford describes, is that in the early 1900s in Central Asia, the issue wasn't trading opium, per se. Rather, the issue was who was doing the trading. There's some indications that Afghan authorities were kind of balancing, doing this sort of balancing act between recognizing opium as an export good and cultivating that as an export good, sort of really sort of the potential being significant for, for you know, the generation of capital, which, which Afghanistan is, was in, in desperate need. As novelist Kim Stanley Robinson once wrote, money equals power, power makes the law, and law makes government. A flourishing opium industry promised much for Afghanistan. Not just money, but international power and protection against Western colonization. Which, if you were a British colonial authority watching from not too far away India, was a problem. In the 1920s, Amanullah Khan comes to power, and he's sort of seen as the great modernizer. He's sort of the, the, the Afghan ruler that comes in that, that wants to embrace sort of this broader sort of pan-Islamic movement that you start to see in Turkey and in Iran with Reza Khan and, and you know, Ataturk in Turkey. And that's really to build Afghanistan into the sort of modern state that, that it, you know, em, embraces these Islamic ideals, but also sort of the secular sort of Western notions of liberal democracies and sort of balances it. And in 1924, well, actually really 1923, but 1924, they pass a law that is, is significant in the sense that it really maps out the legal authority of the state in a way that that's quite big in Afghanistan, not that states don't do this, every state does this, but it was that it, in Afghanistan, there's, there's, a, there's a difference between sort of urban communities and rural communities. Before Amanullah Khan, Afghanistan wasn't a cohesive nation. Rather than a central government holding all of the power, the rule of law was largely determined by local landlords and religious leaders. What was significant about Amanullah's law was that it largely circumvented the rule of law of those religious leaders in rural Afghanistan. Now, why is that important to, to drugs in Afghanistan is that 
the the op the law started to talk about export trade, and it sort of talks about sort of applying excise taxes um, for imports, but it was largely encouraging um, and reducing sort of taxes for exports. And the idea was that they're really trying to increase export trade in order to get as much capital to come back. However, the balance of that was that the law indicates some pretty harsh penalties for the use of opium and charis, which is sort of like the Afghan form of hashish. Um, and that, so that's an indication that Amanullah was trying to, you know, map out this, this sort of balance between reducing and penalizing domestic drug use while at the same time encouraging sort of international exports. These changes in Afghanistan occurred at the same time that the British and Americans were instituting stricter boundaries around drugs, which tempts speculation about Amanullah Khan's reasons and motivations. Might he have been trying to stake a claim to international prestige by encouraging a drug-free nation, much like Japan did in the aftermath of the opium wars? Or was it simply a coincidence? As Dr. Bradford made clear during our conversation, we haven't yet found any historical documentation to support one theory over another. But that's certainly an indication that at least at the, the, the top levels of the government, the Afghan government was trying to, um, in the one sense, obviously increase exports, but also sort of mitigate the effects of domestic drug use. What's key about this is that Amanullah Khan has, he's very ambitious. He rules for nine years. In 1928, there's a huge uprising against Amanullah Khan that, that deposes him. And, and there's a struggle for power for the, over four years. But I think what, what the lesson of Amanullah Khan is that there's real limitations about the, the, the impact of a centralized government in this country. And there's, 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 uh, there's cultural features, and then there's like literally physical features to this. Not only was there a culturally-based resistance to central government, but its mountainous geography made travel in Afghanistan very challenging, especially in the 1920s. And I think what you see happen over time in Afghanistan is that as, as the Afghan government balances this international pressure to conform to drug control, to start to map out some semblance of control, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean sort of imposing criminal laws. It also means it, it, if they're going to pursue a legal drug trade, they have to demonstrate authority over that drug trade. Um, is at the same time, the fact that the central government is projecting to the international community that this is what it's going to do. But because of those cultural and geographic barriers, Afghan officials were trying to walk an incredibly thin line. And that is what really sort of I think drives the drug trade in Afghanistan is that I see drugs essentially as a symptom of the bigger political issue in Afghanistan, which is this disconnect between the central state and, and local rulers and farmers and, and traders. And that as that disconnect grows politically, as tensions grow between the central state and, and um, entities outside of the state, Drugs grow as well, and it becomes sort of this buttress, this sort of support for people economically, politically, socially, to allow them to navigate, um, essentially, you know, the, the attempts of the central state to impose rule. And, and I think that's, the, that's sort of the, the really fascinating element about Afghanistan is that we, we today 
and we just think about Afghanistan today, um, this is a country that's been at war for 40 years. It's been in, in a, a, a great deal of conflict and instability for 40 years. And drugs have largely become essentially a, a significant component of the Afghan economy and the Afghan political culture. And that, I think, is a consequence of this sort of bigger political and cultural conflict between the central state and rural Afghans and traders who, who, who see this product, opium, in a different light than authorities who are trying to, who might, might, might honestly, individually or personally, agree with these farmers. This is, this is a really dumb decision. And that really, I think, sort of, you know, illuminates the problem in, in, in the most basic sense is that um, what, what is being viewed at, at really in the international level about drugs just doesn't make sense to rural farmers and traders in Afghanistan. The rapidly shifting international attitude towards controlling drugs did not match the circumstances on the ground in Afghanistan, where opium cultivation was a way of life for many rural Afghans. So the United States gets involved in Afghanistan in, I, I suppose, the most ironic way possible, in that they are buying drugs. <laughs> Afghanistan was a, a, a backwater. It was a, it, you know, it, it posed no significant economic interest to the United States in the 1920s and 1930s. And in the 1930s, um, American pharmaceutical companies and other pharmaceutical companies in Western Europe start to buy Afghan opium. It was really, really good. So, you know, the morphine content is just exceptionally high. And so, you know, if you buy a kilo of Afghan opium with, you know, 15, 18% morphine in it, versus somewhere in China or India, which is about 5%, you're, you're tripling the amount of morphine that you can extract. So it's a great value. During World War II, there was an especially high demand for opium to produce morphine for the war effort. In that time, the United States was the largest buyer of Afghan opium. What changes is that by the time we get to 1944-45, there's a big pressure within the international community to, to sort of, as the war kind of coming to a close, and there's a recognition um, you know, late 1944, early 1945, that, that it's kind of a, a, a matter of time before the Allies sort of win the conflict, is that drug authorities start to, to sort of envision reestablishment of drug control, sort of this ambition to, to, to bring it back. And this is where the pressure in Afghanistan starts to increase about, hey, you know, let's, you know, Let's think about drug control because the Afghans had demonstrated some interesting things that did not rub uh, drug control authorities in a in a, it didn't it sort of put them in a positive light. So to give you an example of this, um, Harry Anzinger, there was a there's an episode of this I talk about in my book um, where I think it's either Bayer or Pfizer, one of the pharmaceutical companies, purchases opium and the Afghans give them extra. So they make this purchase and the Afghans like throw a bunch of that opium on top. And of course the, the pharmaceutical company is like, this is great. We just got extra opium. Um, but for, for drug regulators, this is, you know, this is outside of the book. This is totally unprofessional and this is inconsistent with how the system's supposed to operate. So that's sort of indicative of like, well, wait a minute, the, you know, the Afghans don't quite play by the rules of the game and we got to sort of rein them in. And so 1944, 45, the pressure mounts, and 
Afghans are great diplomats. Um, it's sort of one of the, the, the sort of the consistent themes of Afghan diplomacy is the ability to sort of use other people's ambitions and demands for your own purpose. And they do it very well. And so Afghans basically say, look, we're a poor country. Um, opium is clearly a viable commodity for us. Give us something in return and we will conform to your efforts for drug control. And basically, the United States um, establishes formal diplomatic channels with the country. They open up an embassy by the time we get into 1945, 46. By 46, Kabul is recognized as its own sort of diplomatic relationship. And more importantly, the United States agrees to invest essentially hundreds of millions of dollars into the Afghan economy. The Afghan authorities, uh, government announces a ban of opium. All government-run companies will stop producing opium. And that this will sort of essentially sort of, you know, acquiesce to this sort of international movement towards drug control. Uh, I find this sort of comical, but I think it's by the time we get in 1946, British uh, agents in Afghanistan start to sort of go to the Americans and say, look, I think you got duped <laughs> because government authorities are still producing opium. They're still trading with France. They just stopped trading it with American companies. They're trading it with other companies. Uh, and there's very little indication that it did anything. And so what's what's significant about that is that the ban was announced in the newspaper, but it was never, ever actually put into legislation in Afghanistan. And as a result, it was basically sort of a paper ban. It was a it was just a sort of, a, you know, a way to sort of convince Americans to, to, to give them money and, and sort of a, a pretty clever diplomatic ploy to get Americans to invest in their country. Um, and so that kind of begins this whole episode between the United States and Afghanistan, where the United States essentially um, becomes one of the major contributors to Afghanistan's economic and political development. And opium played a pretty big role in that. The episode that Dr. Bradford just described is an excellent example demonstrating why we should think about the war on drugs from a global perspective. If told solely from the American perspective, this Afghan ban would seem like a major victory. But by expanding our investigatory lens to include the larger Afghan and international context, we discover a much more nuanced trajectory for the global war on drugs, one that accounts for a variety of individual actions and motivations that explain why nations bought into drug control, even when it seemed against their own interests when you get into the 1950s, is that the Afghan tone and, and the response, particularly from the Americans, are sort of like the, you know, at least in terms of when we're talking about the UN, um, sort of become the main sort of channel, diplomatic channel for Afghans to express themselves, um, is that there, there's a growing sentiment that maybe this that they should become legal. You know, by the time you get in the mid 1950s, there's seven countries that are sort of legal producers, uh, and there's this push by Afghanistan to become the eighth, become the eighth legal producer. And this, you know, and a lot of people support this. They're like, they're, they, they've done this for a long time. They have, you know, this is a product that's that's in parts of Afghanistan is sort of an important crop. It's been an important crop for for centuries in some places. Let's let them have it. It's also a really poor country. Let them have an agricultural that sort of gets them into the global market. And interestingly enough, even Harry Anslinger, like the drug cop of all drug cops, uh, 
kind of sees the reality of this. He's like, you know, it actually makes sense. Like this is this country needs something. But this is where you, again, get into sort of regional politics. And Iran, also another major producer of opium, starts to feel the pressure and the weight of its own drug problem. We know that there, there's an increasing presence of Afghan opium in Iran, and that troubles Iranian authorities. And so this is when they go to, by the time you get to 1957, and Afghanistan is really, you know, they're, they're actually presenting this uh, in front of the UN. This is part of the 1958 sort of Opium Convention, which eventually sort of coming in the 1961 single convention. But basically the, the big pressure is, should Afghanistan be allowed to produce legal opium? And most people say yes. Iran is saying no because they can't control opium. That's a key part of allowing a country to be a legal producer. They have to demonstrate the ability to control domestic production. And what Iranians were saying was that there's just, we're being flooded with Afghan opium. And it's clear that the Afghan authorities are either unwilling, which is certainly true in some cases, or unable, which is probably the more accurate answer to control the production of drugs. And ultimately, um, Afghanistan abandons any attempt to become a legal producer of opium, and 1958 reimposes the ban of opium. Ultimately, the Afghan bid for legal producer status didn't pan out. But that didn't stop them from continuing to leverage the international atmosphere for their own benefit the best that they could. The Cold War really does have a looming presence always in Afghanistan. And I think the, the, the major reason why the Cold War shapes Afghan drug politics is that Afghanistan is neutral. Um, like I said before, the, the, the policy of Afghanistan is to stay outside of this Cold War conflict. And, and, and I would even argue it might not even be neutrality. Uh, it's, it's really duality. It's playing both hands. They're, 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 they're sort of playing two games at once. They, they're sort of using Americans for what they can get out of Americans and they're using the Soviets for what they can get out of the Soviets and sort of really creates this interesting dynamic. When it comes to drugs... A key approach that the United States utilized during the Cold War was modernization. Essentially, U.S. resources could be strategically deployed to so-called vulnerable countries to accelerate their growth towards a capitalist democracy. Doing so would bolster them against Soviet influence thus containing the spread of communism. It was also a great opportunity for smaller countries to draw much-needed money into their economies. So in, in that sense of this sort of this dual game that the Afghans are playing between the Americans and the Soviets, um, it creates these pressures and also, you know, what are the objectives of the state, right? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? And... That, of course, is going to shape the the development of certain parts of Afghanistan based off of who is contributing and financing and supporting that development, if that makes any sense. So I think the, 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 what you see in Afghanistan with the Cold War is that certain parts of Afghanistan start to develop in certain ways, conforming to these two separate entities. So give me an example. Well, this on the American side, the Helmand Valley is America's, I mean, this is where they built little New York in Afghanistan, Lashkar Gah, which was sort of this creation of this modern city. Um, and this was part of the 1945 opium ban, by the way, 
uh, was was the Helmand Valley Development Project um, as, a, as a sort of consequence of the sort of diplomatic relationship. Is that the Helmand Valley becomes this huge, hundreds of millions of dollars development project to turn Helmand into an agro-industrial base. That is, in the one sense, uh, uh, in 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 a, in neutral, non-political way, a way for Afghan, for the United States to bring this poor country into the global marketplace. And I say that kind of condescendingly, because obviously that wasn't the real intent. The intent, too, is also to build a, a sort of bastion of capitalism in southwestern Afghanistan that would also serve as a buttress to what is a few hundred miles to the north, which is the Soviet Union. And what and so in that sense, there's always this sort of deliberate aim to develop Afghanistan in a way that doesn't fully turn Afghanistan into the American sphere because the Americans are really more concerned about Iran and Pakistan. Those are really sort of the important figures for them in, in India increasingly. Afghanistan doesn't it's not a it's not a, a vital strategic partner for them throughout the Cold War. But it's still it kind of is because it's it is the buffer state. It is the state that sits between American interests in the subcontinent and Southwest Asia and the Soviet Union to the north. So the Helmand Valley is sort of like a really good example of sort of the development of the space where the United States is sort of transforming this rural economy that is laden with Cold War ambitions, essentially sort of creating a solidly pro-American space that works, that functions, that's engaged in the global market, that will prevent sort of an incursion of sort of social, socialist and Soviet ideas into, into Afghanistan, and even more so what they would be more worried about into the subcontinent. And it works. The American project succeeds. By the 1970s, the Helmand Valley is producing crops of wheat and cotton to sell on the global market. But the thing about capitalism is that it doesn't really adhere to laws. And it's, it's really ironic, you know, that America spends decades building this place to become Little New York, this sort of great American, you know, petri dish of economic development. And it ends up becoming now in Afghanistan today, you know, arguably half, if not two thirds of the opium that's produced in Afghanistan comes from the Helmand Valley. So what exactly does the story of drug production and control in Afghanistan tell us about the war on drugs? I think what we need to recognize is that drugs are a symptom of these deeper issues of politics uh, uh, that exist in these spaces. So in Afghanistan, you know, if we talk about economic development, you know, drugs provide economic development in, in absence of other legitimate products. So I think a global perspective of drug control really shows how interconnected we are, not only in in these products, but also sort of politically and how the, sort of the consequences of a decision in one country can can have sort of ramifications elsewhere. That sort of very narrow lens of viewing it and when applied in a country like Afghanistan and other parts of the world, that we don't fully understand the consequences of that, that that ends up having much bigger consequences for, for issues of politics, of, of economic development, and I would argue ultimately for 
like the human sanctity of life because what you have over the last 40 years, I've got the war, six and a half million refugees, hundreds of thousands of people have died from war and conflict and instability. Afghanistan has almost a million drug addicts. Yes, drugs have contributed to it, but the policy has as well. And again, I think that goes back to viewing it as a symptom. A global perspective also reveals how drug wars became an international system through multilateral conversations, agreements, and compromises over time. And when it comes to questions of legalizing drugs, we must keep in mind this constellation of connections and systems that comprise the war on drugs and ask who the job of unraveling it will fall to when the time comes. Next time on Prologued. When looking at drug control and the relationship between drug control and counterinsurgency and, and, and modernization or, or development, that counterinsurgency and modernization are, you know, two sides of the, the same coin. They, they work hand in hand. The Cold War on Drugs, part two. Whether they're Chinese communities in northern Mexico, or whether they're indigenous communities in southern Mexico, the fact that they're somehow imagined to be linked to drug consumption or cultivation is enough to get them to be targeted by, by different um, state coercive state apparatuses within this emerging post-revolutionary state. This season of Prologue was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication created by the Public History Initiative, the Goldberg Center, and the History Departments at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Special thanks to the Stanton Foundation for their ongoing support. Our editors are David Staggerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breifogel. Researched, written, and hosted by Brianna Mendoza. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotmer, and our production specialist is Brandon McLean at Orange Studio. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It helps others find our show. As any good historian should, we encourage our listeners to visit the episode descriptions for citations to background reading and sources that informed the creation of this podcast. Season 1 of Prologued on the Myth of the Women's Block has all episodes streaming now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts. For additional podcasts, articles, and videos, all of which approach events happening in our world today from a historical perspective, Follow us on social media at OriginsOSU. Thanks for listening.